Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 380. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 380 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-winning producer, engineer, and mixer, Nick Raskulinix, who's worked with Rush, Alice in Chains, Foo Fighters, Deftones, and many, many others. And we have a fantastic conversation I really think you're going to enjoy. So Nick Raskulinix, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about perseverance. You've heard me say it before, hard things are hard. And the audio world can be hard. It can be difficult if you're just getting started to figure out where to put your energy, how to get established. Yes, we can watch you know, all the content that we want on the internet and try to absorb that. We can read all the books we want. We can go to school, but to really, you know, put your nose to the grindstone and get established, that can be the challenge. First of all, from an economic perspective, if you're working a day gig and it doesn't pay that great, you know, you're, you might be struggling to pay your bills. So to acquire the gear that you need to get established, that's the first challenge. And let's say once you get the gear, getting somebody to hire you to use that gear is another challenge. And even if you are established and you want to open a studio, that is a challenge in its own category. And keeping that studio running well, man, that's, <laughs> as for those of you that know my history, you know that I know that that is a true challenge. So that being said, knowing that there are these challenges and that it can be difficult, it can be discouraging too, because those around you, if they don't see the results, they may start to question that. And they're, they're questioning it may start to impede on your brain a bit. And then you start to doubt yourself. And years can go by and you don't see any monumental results, but, and therefore people still question, when are you going to get a, a real job? When are you going to do something, you know, typical? And it can be very frustrating. It can be um, discouraging, disappointing. And once again, it, it's, it's like a feedback loop. It starts feeding back on, on you and you start to doubt yourself. So very simply put, I'm here to tell you, for those of you that are struggling out there and facing any of these challenges, I'm going to be the voice that says, no, you have to persevere. You have to press on. You cannot stop. If you truly love the world of audio, no matter what the audio discipline, it's important that you keep hammering away at it day after day, hour by hour, minute by minute. You may not see instantaneous results, and maybe you haven't figured out how to get to the results you want, but you just break it up into little steps and deal with those steps. And you've heard me talk about the book Atomic Habits before. It's about maintaining a habit of continual self-improvement when it comes to audio. Always be asking how you can improve 
each thing that you're doing. Make that a daily habit. Don't set a goal, just instill habits because habits over time materialize into bigger things. They can be bad things, of course. They can be good things, right? You know, if you uh, eat something that's not good for you for 5, 10, 20 years, bad things are probably going to materialize. But if you eat good things, right, good things materialize. It's the same in audio. If you keep hammering away at it, your skill level will grow. Good things will materialize. So every day, just try to ask yourself, what am I doing today to improve my audio skills and if you focus on the skills and you focus on establishing your audio pre your presence in the world of audio and i'm not just talking about social media i'm just talking about doing a great job having people be happy with your work and letting that word spread having people talk about you recommend you etc great things will materialize but once again it goes back to having faith in yourself and not stopping. You've heard me talk about it before. If financially it makes sense to keep your day job, keep your day job and continue to do audio. Obviously you're gonna to have to work out the work-life balance issues that come with that, but you can do it. It's totally doable. And for those that have been at it for a while, you're not immune to challenges. I mean, challenges crop up every day. I've heard time and time again, people say, I don't know if the phone's going to ring again. I don't know if I'm going to work again. You know, just because people win Grammys and, and do well on records is no guarantee that the work will continue for the rest of their life. People who have success have to continue to do work as well. They have to continue to reinvent themselves, keep themselves on the top of people's minds. They still have to do a good job. They can't just phone it in once they get a Grammy. So. The challenges exist at every step of the process. And if those around you are doubting what you're doing, you either have to explain to them or just ignore them and just nod your head and say, yeah, yeah, I hear you. And then press on and don't stop. Don't let anybody on the outside and their negativity tell you to stop. The only person that you need to be listening to are your clients and yourself. If your clients tell you, hey, this could be better, Listen to your clients. If you think it could be better, listen to yourself and compete with yourself. It's a tough road. It's not always easy for sure. However, put those habits into practice, let them materialize into good things and persevere. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Nick Raskulinix here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's just great to have you here. Fan of your work. Definitely a Alice in Chains fan, for sure. And we'll get into that record a bit. But let's start off with, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and spent pretty much my whole childhood and school years and high school years kind of just growing up in Knoxville and being a kid and getting into music, 13, 14, seriously getting into it and getting into playing guitar and starting a band with my friends, rehearsing at the drummer's house. We always had to play at the drummer's house because none of us drove, so we right. didn't have any way to get anywhere. So That's where the couldn't. drums were, right? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. And got really, really into music and playing into bands. And uh, the day after I graduated high school, I was like, all right, done with this, done with school, ready to ready to pursue this dream that I've had for the last six or seven years. Who got you into guitar? Why, why was it guitar first? I think because my uncles played guitar. Mm. Both, both of my uncles, my mom's brothers, one of them played classical guitar, like really, really good, like Segovia level. He would spend like two years learning a piece of music. And I was listening to Rat and you know, Motley <laughs> Crue and was like, what? <laughs> Two years? Come on. <laughs> and then my other uncle 
The younger one, he was more into rock. He was kind of more into like the police and Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. And he wasn't too much older than I was. So we were similar in age. I think hanging out with my uncles is what made me really notice the guitar at first, seeing how they would play and be able to play songs that I had heard on the radio. And my oldest uncle had a band and he's got super long hair. He's playing a red SG in the park in New Jersey with a bunch of hippies all around. And I always just thought that was the coolest thing. So that's probably what got me into the guitar. And then a lot of the music I was listening to, like Iron Maiden was probably my first big love guitar band. And, you know, Iron Maiden's all about the guitar, especially Number of the Beast and Peace of Mind and Power Slave. And that's all I was listening to. So a guitar seemed like, like the thing. Yeah, I will never forget being at my uncle's house in Albuquerque and MTV was on, I think it was maybe 1981, and seeing Run to the Hills and just going, oh my gosh, that's yeah. what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. I remember when the when the same thing, video on MTV of, for Number of the Beast came out and it shows, I don't remember which guitar player, but it shows them playing that. I always thought that was the coolest riff. So... I just got into guitar, you know, and I, I it was never the greatest guitar player. I'm still not the greatest guitar player. You know, I know my way around and I can play lots of rhythm stuff. And I've, I've never been able to like, been like a lead guy or anything. It's more of a, of a melodic approach to it, I guess, that I like to take. But would, would you agree that it served you well in the producer chair because of your ability to communicate with, I mean, when you're talking with Alex Lifeson or Jerry Cantrell, you probably better know what you're talking about. There's no question it did. I mean, all those years, teenage years, playing guitar, taking guitars apart and fixing them and changing things and messing with different string gauges. I mean, learning how to tune a guitar. Mm. I mean, let's just start with that alone. That in itself takes years to be able to perfect, in my opinion. And all that stuff has come back around without question. In the last 20 years of this awesome career that I've had, I still look back at the teenage years and early 20 years of banging around in a band and trying to make that happen on that end and all the things involved with that, you know, your instrument alone. And then after the guitar, I kind of started to get into drums a little bit. And actually, if I was going to play anything in a band, it would be the bass. Why is that? Because basically I played guitar up until a point to where I was in a band and the band broke up, right? So all the other guys went and started this other band and I went and started my own band as a guitar player. And like I said earlier, I was never the greatest guitar player. I, I could write a decent song, but I was never a lead guy. And back then in the 80s, it was all about being the lead guy. Everybody wanted to be Warren D. Martini. Nobody wanted to be Robin Crosby. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everybody wanted to be George Lynch. You right. know, Nobody wanted to be the other guy. But I was the other guy and I was fine with it. But anyway, so my friends started this kick-ass band, and they needed a bass player. And I was like, all right, well, cool, I'll play bass. So I started playing bass and kind of picked that up as my main instrument for the next 10 years up until now. And then the guitar kind of took the back seat, and then it was kind of became more about playing the bass guitar. And that's where learning how to write a song and anchoring a song and, you know, all the things involved with the bass became my obsession. So if I was going to do anything, I would play the bass these Hmm. days. But you did dabble in the drums a bit. And yeah, the drums too. You know, more of a hobby. I've never played drums in a band or anything, just mainly in the studio and playing for fun. But 
all three of those things that I did throughout my teenage years and 20s up to my 30s, without question, helped me have better dialogue and better understanding of instruments and the musicians and artists I was working with. I can speak the language pretty well across all three of those instruments. So when people in bands, we meet and we get in the studio and they kind of start to discover that, it creates a great bond, Mm -hmm. especially with drummers. For some reasons, drummers more than anybody. I don't know why. Hmm. But when drummers figure out that I'm like a total drum nerd, complete obsessed freak about drums and recording drums and changing heads and tuning drums and everything that comes with that, they're just like, whoa, okay, kick ass. (laughs) Yeah. Drummers are a very special breed. I I always say that on the show because I'm a drummer and drummers are just, they're kooky people. Across the board. Something I've noticed in this in this journey of mine is there's something common about a lot of drummers and bands. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to put my finger exactly on what it is. Uh-huh. But there's something different about drummers. Yeah. You know, slightly different breed of human being. Totally. Totally. So yeah, you know, banging around in the station wagon with my eight track in the back and a carload of mic stands and mic cables and pulling up to some band's rehearsal room and loading all that stuff in and recording a demo and taking it back to my house and unloading all of it into my mom's garage and mixing it and doing that year after year from age 20 to 25, just on a local Knoxville scene level. Yeah. By the time I left Knoxville and went out to California and started working at Sound City, I like had all this experience behind me. But I didn't, I, haven't, I, really, I didn't really realize it then. I think about that more now than I did then. The journey was just still going forward. Right. If I read correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, that your grandfather helped you buy the 8-track. He helped me buy the 8-track because I used the college money that they gave me. They were like, graduate high school. Hey, Nicholas, here's, I think it was like 3700 bucks or something. Right. Here's a few thousand bucks to help you go to University of Tennessee, which back in the 80s was probably, that was probably a couple semesters of school. Yeah, easily. (laughs) Back then. But I took the money with full support of my parents, and I went down to the local music store and bought an 8-track and 10 mic cables and six or seven SM57s, which I still have and use today, by the way, and Hmm. headphones and some speakers. Went to Lindsay Ward electronic store and bought some Yamaha power amp that had RCA inputs on the back I could hook everything into. And that was the deal, man. So the money that he gave, Hmm. they gave me for college, I used to buy studio stuff. And to me, that was my education. I think that that is the smart move there, honestly. Even in this day and age, I think people should just buy the gear and start operating. But you had been a player in bands and I'd heard, have heard you say in previous interviews that you'd wanted to be a rock star. What started to drive you in the direction of paying attention to the recording end of things? Yeah, I mean, you're totally right, man. When I moved to California, I had full intentions of our band, the three other guys that I was with at the time. That was really our mission. The recording thing hadn't, hadn't really consumed me yet. It was still something I was just doing. And the whole reason I started to do it, honestly, was to record our band. Yeah. That's the whole reason. So I could hear what we sounded like. So we could work on our songs and make our songs better. We started recording live rehearsals and 
I would run a snake into the drummer's bedroom on the other side of the house and get them all to play and get levels real quick and then run in there, you know, press record and run in there real quick and we'd play the song and then we'd all go in there and listen to it. And we would make arrangement changes and things like that. But at the time we were just going forward. We weren't really thinking about what we were doing. So when we moved out to California, it was really about the band still. And immediately we got out there, we got an apartment in Hollywood, we got a rehearsal room, like all within like the first week. And it was just like, whoa, we're doing it. And then we played at the Whiskey and we played at the Roxy and the Troubadour. (laughs) We did the whole thing. The the Sunset Strip was still kind of coming down from the 80s vibe. The stories you remember hearing about cars for miles. Well, it was still like that when we moved out there. Wow. It was kind of the tail end of that. So it was great. There was tons of places to play and there were record companies there and studios. So it was like, we're here. And then doing that, I got a job at a pizza place over across from Canner's Deli over on Fairfax. And I was making pizzas and lattes and $12 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for club kids who were tripping out of their minds on ecstasy and, and playing during the band during the day. And, and it was great. It it really was. It was great. I I had a great time. And then an acquaintance of mine, a guy named Brian Bell, who plays guitar in Weezer, who is from Knoxville, right after high school, he moved to L.A. He was like, you know, I'm not going to college here. I'm going to go to MI. I'm out of here. I'm going to go to Musicians Institute. So he would come home for Christmas all throughout the early 90s and be like, oh, let me hear your recordings. And he was kind of like, your recordings sound great. And you should come to L.A. because there's all studios out here. And I was just kind of like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm, I'm doing the band. <laughs> you were driven to, to, stick, to try to make it work. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. I was hmm. all in. I left my parents. I left the girl that is now my wife, my future wife behind. I left everything. It was the total. Wow. We're going for it. May I We're ask, going for it. did you have people that said, oh, you're going to LA, you're going to go try to do this rock star thing? Did they try to kind of poo-poo the idea and say, that'll never happen, that's a one in a million chance kind of a thing? No, nobody ever said that to me. I mean, I'm sure they said it in the background because yeah. it did seem crazy Yeah, back then, especially. But I always looked at it as like, well, if it doesn't work, we'll come home. We all looked at it that way. If it hmm. doesn't work, we'll come home. We got to at least try because it was not going to happen for us in Knoxville. Right. You know, at the time, Knoxville was all about super duper alternative rock and college alternative rock. And we didn't have a chance. So anyway, I'm in California working at this pizza place. It totally sucked. My buddy Brian Bell calls me, says, hey, we're, we're working on a record down at the studio called Sound City in the Valley in Van Nuys. Hmm. And they're looking for a runner. And I told the studio manager, Siobhan, about you. And she wants to meet you. Come down here like right now. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay. So I got in the band van, (laughs) drove down to Sound City, met Siobhan. Super cool. She gave me a tour. You know, I had no idea what to expect. I really didn't. I had no idea. I'd never been in a real professional studio before. Wow. (laughs) So she hires me on the spot. Is like, cool. I need you to start tomorrow. I'm like, okay. So I'm driving back to Hollywood. I'm like, shit, I got to go quit this other job. And I got to get a car. I didn't even have a car yet. I had the band van, which we were all sharing at the time. So I couldn't totally grab the band van and lift the other guys hanging. So I called my old boss in Knoxville at the Mexican restaurant that I worked at since I was 15. And I told him about this opportunity and sure as shit, he sent me like 1500 bucks the next day. And I bought a car 
I drove to Sound City and I started as a runner. Wow. Yep. That was pretty cool. That's how it went down. That's amazing. You're coming from Knoxville to Los Angeles. That's a very different place. So yeah. did you have any culture shock or, or did you know what you were getting into? I mean, I didn't really know what I was getting into, but when I was younger, most of my family roots are from New Jersey and New York City up in the Northeast. Mm. Ever since I was little, I was always going up there and visiting them and my grandparents would take me into New York City. So I had kind of already been exposed to New York City by the time I was like six or seven or eight years old, riding the subway, riding the bus, going with my grandma to see plays on Broadway. And my uncles would take me into the city. They'd take me to, you know, 48th where Sam Ash and Manny's, all the guitar stores used to be back in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. A very different place back then. I very vividly remember walking around Times Square <laughs> with my uncles. And the pizza place and the runner position, was the pay roughly the same or did you take a hit in pay or? I think it was roughly the same. I mean, the pizza place, it was like cash under the table type deal. I don't even remember how much it was. It, it was nothing. It was nothing to walk away from that. And then I started as a runner. What did you think of that position and the job description? Well, immediately I loved it because I just felt this energy and this vibe and this air that I had never felt before in the rooms of that studio. And all of a sudden I was hanging, <laughs> hanging out in this studio that's got like the best engineers and the best producers and signed rock bands to all the major label. I was like, whoa, I just felt like it was where I was supposed to be. It's hard to describe. One of my favorite all-time records, Rat Out of the Cellar, double platinum on the wall yeah. right in front of me. I'm sitting there at the runner's desk all day, every day, staring at that, just like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. And Tom Petty just walked down the hall and hey, there's Carl Perkins and Rick Rubin's coming in today. And whoa, fucking Joe Barisi just walked in. Holy <laughs> shit. Like, oh my God. And he's really cool. And, yeah. you know, he, he likes loudness and I love loudness and, you know, like just stuff like that. It just, but I was making sure the coffee was always full, making sure the bathroom was clean, taking everybody's food orders, bringing it back quick. Everybody's orders correct. It was a hustle, man. It was full on. It was, it was me and a couple other dudes maintaining two studios full of people. And you were getting you were getting paid too, which is not very common for a runner position. No, we were getting paid. I think it was like 10 bucks an hour. It wasn't much, but we were working 15, 18 hour days. No hmm. benefits, no nothing, man. Oh, yeah. And then, and then, you know, when you're a runner, I think it was like 30 cents a mile or something to cover your gas. Wow. So back then in the mid 90s, mid to late 90s, it was enough to survive. There was a Taco Bell on the corner. <laughs> there was a Denny's right there. I made enough money to pay rent and it just worked. So at some point you realize that your band situation is not going to work out. Correct. At what point do you realize where you're at at Sound City as a runner in the position you're in that you're going to change your trajectory? Man, it was probably over the course of the next year or so as I started to work at Sound City more and more and seeing what was happening. I started to get into the rooms. It started to become less runner and more like second assistant slash runner depending on who the artist was and how big the setup was and what the needs of the producer was. And an extra pair of hands always helped. 
And doing all the stuff I had done in Knoxville, all the recording I had already done, when I walked into the room, I already knew what a lot of the shit already was. So immediately, I think they were like, oh, shit, this guy kind of knows what he's doing already. So I started assisting more, not too long after the runner thing. And as I, that happened, I started to spend more time in the control room during the sessions. Mm-hmm. And I would be able to listen to the overdubbing that was happening or the vocal recording or the producer working out the arrangements. And it just started to hit me after a while. You know, and the music scene was sto- totally starting to change then yep. in the late. We're in like 97 now, you okay. know, 1997. And it, the music scene was changing again. And our band just didn't really fit in the mold of what was starting to get popular. And I don't know. I, I, I never really lost interest in the band. I just, I was just like, man, we're, just, we're never going to make it, man. I don't know if our songs are good enough. I just, there's just something that's not, I don't know. I, I guess I lost interest in a way, mm-hmm. in being in a band, just dealing with all the stuff and all the letdowns and all the getting your hopes up and all the work it takes to make a band really happen. And it started to become kind of obvious to me watching what was happening in the studio that it felt like it wasn't going to happen for us. And we were all getting older, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I remember one day I played our newest demo for an artist that was recording at Sound City. And it was somebody I had kind of gotten comfortable enough with. I spent a bunch of time with and their band was fucking, their band was nuts. It was like crazy music, but it was starting to get really popular. And I was like, man, if anybody gets this, he's going to get it. So I played it for him one night and within seconds, I could just tell he wasn't interested and was just like, uh, you know, whatever. Uh. And it was just like, boom, that was the defining moment. I drove home and showed up at the apartment that I was still living with the dudes in, and I quit the band that night. That's a tough position to be in. Guys, yeah. you've, you've moved out with, you've been hanging with, they're your brothers, and then you're leaving the nest. Yeah. You're really rocking the boat here. It was really hard, man. It was probably the hardest decision I had ever had to make at that point in, up to my life. Like you just said, you know, I was letting my brothers down. And this thing we had worked so hard on for so long, but I just, what was I going to do? Keep doing it and pretend to me that's worse. Yeah. That's not fair to them. That's not fair to me. That's not fair to the whole deal. Then it's just going to turn into an explosion and it's all going to go South. Then we're risking friendships. It's not like I didn't want to be friends with these dudes anymore. I want I just didn't want to be in the band anymore. Yeah. And we all remain friends to this day because of it. Yeah, and it's for those who have never been in that position, there's an identity crisis, I think, that happens a bit because you've been so, you've bought into this concept that this is it, we're going to do this. And then when it, you realize it's not going to work, it can be a little emotional, maybe not break down crying emotional, but in your head, it gets a little rough. Thinking, Absolutely. am I making the right decision? It was very, very hard. And very pragmatic of you, too. I mean, I'm sure you've seen Decline of Western Civilization, the metal years, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Seeing all those people in the in that movie go, the interview person saying, well, what if it doesn't work out? Well, it's going to work out. Like, yeah. Just belligerent. And I was seeing that also at Sound City, working there. I was seeing that side of it, too. Mm. Right? So I was seeing all the positive and kick-ass stuff, but I was also seeing exactly what you just said happen right before my eyes with bands who had kind of gone past already but they were in there and they were doing it this is the one this oh yeah is, this is it this is the one yeah nobody's listening to this kind of music anymore but i'm still gonna do it 
And then as I'm working at Sound City, that record comes out seven or eight months later and it just, see ya, does nothing. Yeah. So it wasn't like a decision I made, like, boom, I'm out. It, it took me a while to come to that decision. It was a very hard decision. It really was. I still think about it to this day sometimes. Yeah, I bet you do. Well, once you made the decision, did you make a conscious decision to say, okay, I'm going to focus on on this recording thing and work my way up the ladder at Sound City? Oh, yeah, that was it. That's when the obsession started. That's when I put all my time and effort into learning how to be an engineer and learning how to make a record sound like a record, learning how to use all the stuff in that studio environment. A lot of it was foreign to me. The mics and the cables and the stands, obviously, you know, I could go set that stuff up. And But I'd never used an LA 2A before or a Neve console or any of that stuff that was in that room at the time. So it was like, whoa, what is this stuff? This is different. Again, back then, you were the fly on the wall in the room. The more invisible you were to the artist and everybody around, the better. But when they needed something, you were right there and you made it happen immediately. So that was the focus, was really learning how to make a record. It wasn't really about producing or anything yet. It was more about engineering and sounds and how you make a record sound like a record. It's a very challenging position to be in because you're not needed very much, but then when you are needed, obviously you have to react. And in those times of where you're sitting back waiting, it's very easy to get distracted or bored and and it seems like you you managed to maintain a presence there, but not maintain too much of a presence in that position. Oh, yeah. And there was so much more to do back then. When you were dealing with a console and a patch bay and outboard gear and a tape machine, and then the whole monitoring system, and then the whole headphone system, and that's just the control room. So you're in charge of all of that stuff, knowing how to hook it all up, how to make it all work. The tape machine alone was, right. that was a full-time job. Between the maintenance, keeping up with the reels, keeping everything organized, making sure the tones were good, checking the alignment every... I mean, that, that was a full-time job. People have no idea what that was like nowadays. Now you hook up a pre-formatted hard drive to a computer and you record your record. You never even think twice about the hard drive, ever. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app 
Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. It's a big jump from an 8-track to a 24-track machine in terms of alignment. So it was. The first time you were asked to align a tape machine, were you given any kind of guidance, or did they just throw you in the deep end? Well, the good thing about Sound City is it was such a cool spot to be. Like, everybody that came in there knew what they were getting. It was just a cool vibe, a cool atmosphere. The assistants that were above me, Greg Fiddleman and Billy Bowers— who have both gone on to do oh, yeah. incredible things. Both came from sound. They, those were the guys, when I started as a runner, they were the assistants. So I came up beneath them, especially Greg Fiddleman. Yeah. I was his, his assistant a lot on a lot of sessions. There was a tech named Danny Buchanan who didn't work for Sound City. He worked at a bunch of studios around. He mainly worked at A&M, hmm. but he would come over whenever to fix stuff and between him and Greg and Billy, I would watch them align the tape decks, the mm. studers. So I was just always over their shoulders, you know. By the time I actually physically did it myself, I knew exactly what was happening. I just hadn't physically done it. So back then, what do you do? You wait till the client leaves, and then you throw the tones reel up, and you practice aligning the tape deck. You align it for the next day, just off those tones. And doing a record alignment was the most stressful one. That's when you're starting from scratch. You got the the MRL reel with the pre-formatted stuff and it's this and that, and you got to line a tape deck to that. And then you have to do your other part of it. And it was a complicated process. And if you didn't do it correctly, you get a call from a really pissed off producer at the next studio because the alignment was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> or God forbid you hit record on the alignment tape. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just maintaining the tape deck. That was a full-time job in addition yeah. to all the other stuff. How did you get out of that position? How did you graduate? What was the moment? The moment, it wasn't one particular moment. It was multiple moments of being around a lot, working on lots of different stuff, becoming friends with lots of different engineers and different producers. Eventually, late 90s-ish, I started getting calls from different producers and engineers who needed work on projects outside of Sound City. So I would go work with them on projects in other studios around town. And then through some of my band connections, the years I was in the band, I had already met some A&R people. And then I saw, mm. started to see some of them again now, three, four years later. And now I'm this dude at Sound City, head assistant guy, working on all the kick-ass stuff. So I started to realize that I needed to not get stuck in an assisting position. That if I was going to do this thing that I still wanted to do, I had to move up to engineer. I had to get out of Sound City and I had to find some bands that I could record and show my engineering skills and stuff like that. Because back then you could still get demo deals with labels. Right. You get a call from an A&R guy and be like, hey, we're thinking about signing this band. We got 25 grand. Take him in the studio, record four songs, record demos. So there was a lot of that stuff going on back then. So I started to do some of that stuff. And then I would start first engineering certain things that would come into Sound City where they didn't have an engineer. They might not have enough money. They had a producer in a band, but they didn't have an engineer. So Siobhan, studio manager, would be like, well, you can use Nick. Nick will engineer it for you. So things like that started happening. I would go out to see local bands. 
There was a band called Fireball Ministry that was bopping around the scene in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I saw them play and I was like, whoa, I love this band. And I literally just went up to them after the show and introduced myself, said, hey, I've got access to this studio that I work at. We can go in on weekends or after hours. Would you, you, know, you guys want to record a couple songs? I would start doing stuff like that and hmm. just kind of started building up a reel a CD that had five or six songs by five or six different bands. And so I had my little promo reel and it was kind of like the same thing as promoting your band. Yeah. You got to let these people know you're out there. That's so right. I just started doing that. And honestly, man, just word of mouth. I ended up making a record for Danzig. I met Glenn Danzig through another friend who was the guitar player playing with Danzig at the time. And he really liked some of the stuff I was recording around town. So he told Glenn, Glenn called me. I ended up engineering a record. That was kind of the first like big thing I did. And right before that, again, another a Sound City connection led me to record with Duff McKagan. I recorded his band at the time called Loaded. So I was like hanging out with Duff in his kick-ass house up on Laurel Canyon. He had this amazing studio built into it. And he had a tape machine and a board and all tons of outboard gear. And he didn't know how to use any of it. And he didn't want to use any of it. He wanted somebody who could do it to record his band. So boom, I'm up there making a record with him. So it was little incremental steps yeah. that led me out of Sound City to the point to where I went down and talked to Siobhan and was like, I guess I'm kind of done working here full time. And I went back sporadically yeah. if she needed me for something and I wasn't doing anything, I would go back and assist or engineer or whatever. But it kind of split, but I maintained the relationship the whole time. Were you consciously thinking to yourself as you're working with like Danzig and working with Duff McKagan, are you thinking, wow, I'm really starting to escalate here. This is really growing. I need to keep going. Working with those people, I'm sure you're thinking this could get bigger than this. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't so much like a conscious realization while it was happening. It just felt right. I felt like I was hanging out with the people that I should be. Mm -hmm. And they liked what I was doing and for whatever reasons, it just all happened. And yeah, I mean, there were moments of, there were, of course, there were moments of like, holy crap, Duff McKagan, wow. <laughs> Duff McKagan's house. Were you surviving? Was, was the amount of money you were making keeping you afloat? Yeah, it was. At that time, I was living with Amber, my wife now. We've been together since then. She ended up moving out to LA a couple of years later after I did. I'd be calling her from the desk at Sound City two o'clock in the morning, waiting for the session to be over. Like, you got to come out here. It's great out here. There's so much to do and there's tons of shows. And Because she's also from Tennessee as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We had, we had a little apartment in Hollywood over by Pink's Hot Dogs in the little neighborhood over there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was surviving barely. Okay. Like barely though. Barely. Duff paid me, of course. You know, he paid me and Glenn Danzig paid me. But, you know, I could, who am I? I couldn't ask for a proper rate or anything. I still hadn't done anything to warrant that type of situation. From what I understand from the research I've done on you, I've, I've heard two stories. I've heard one, Dave Grohl called the wrong phone number and got you, but then I've also heard that you two were chatting, you had become friendly with him and were chatting about the possibility of you working on the next Foo Fighters record at that time, one by one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what's the story there? How did you get in the door with the Foo Fighters. So I met Dave at Sound City when I was working at Sound City. Him and the Foo Fighters showed up actually on, I was there on a day off. I'm pretty sure it was a Sunday. And they showed up, they needed to record a song and they had a producer 
and they had all their gear and everything. And I just happened to be there. And it was one of those, well, you need an engineer? Cool. Nick's here. You do it. So that's how I met Dave for the first time. And that was in, I think, 99, I think. We totally, you know, hit it off and everybody was super friendly and it was super cool and it was really quick. It was a couple days and then boom, he was gone. And then I didn't see him again for fast forward a couple years. I was bumming around. Oh yeah, I was bumming around Hollywood. I remember I was doing some stuff at Mates. I was like inventorying a bunch of gear and crap. It was like totally lame. And at that point I was kind of like, man, I don't know if this is going to work. I remember telling my wife, and we talked about this recently. I was like, you remember that time when we almost decided to move back to Knoxville? Yeah, that's interesting. Things would have been very different for me. You know, I was doing stuff, but it was getting harder for some reason. I don't know what was happening. I don't remember at the time. So I was at Mates and I ran into Dave in the parking lot and he immediately remembered me and how could I not remember him? And it was like, hey, what's going on? Blah, 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 blah. We had a conversation and he was getting ready to make a record in Virginia at his home studio. And he already had a producer. Adam Casper was going to produce it again, who produced the previous record. So I ended up flying to Virginia and we started working on what would become one by one. Right. We worked there for a couple months. This was right after 9-11. And I think Dave got a call to do the Queens of the Stone Age album to play drums on it. And he was super excited about it. So he, he stopped the session and went to L.A. And I went back to L.A. Everybody kind of broke camp with the whole thing. Oh, okay, you know, oh yeah, we're going to get back together and do this when, when I'm done with this. And a few months goes by and I start, had started working on another record. Mm. My friend Matt Hyde, who was a producer, engineer. He worked at Sound City all the time and I would assist him a lot. We became really close and I had engineered a record for him, a Fu Manchu record a year before. Love Fu Manchu. Yeah, me too. And they're one of my favorite bands. They were in and out of Sound City all the time. So I had kind of known those guys. So it was a lot of fun. So Matt needed an engineer for another project. So I started working on that. As I'm working on that, Dave had finished his Queens of the Stone Age stuff and I got a call that he wanted to start working on the record again. And he wanted to talk to me about it. You know, I was like, all right, cool. Are we going back? And I guess something had happened with the previous producer. And he basically was like, well, just me and you are going to make the record. And I was like, great. He's like, you're going to produce it. And I was like, okay. Cause we had already spent a few months together working on some stuff. And we got really close, man. We were totally hanging out. I was living in his house for like two and a half months. And we were just hanging out 24 seven, just totally broing down, jamming and drinking lots of beer and just having a blast. <laughs> this was 20 years ago. Yeah. We're the same age. So we were both 31, 32 years old. So I had to call John Silva, his manager, and tell him why I should do this. <laughs> Basically convince him that I was capable of doing this. And I guess I did, because I ended up back in Virginia and we spent another couple months. We took some of the songs that were in the first batch of what we had done. But Dave had just gone down to the Caribbean for a vacation. He went to the Bahamas and he wrote a couple songs down there. And that was the catalyst for us getting back together. When I got the call to get back together and go make what is now One by One, he had written times like these mm. and Low and I think one other song on the record. I think Come Back, the last song, is really weird, weird, long song. And we went back and we made it. That is my recollection of, of everything. Of events. The conversation with John Silva, obviously you must have been nervous because you're thinking, 
this could be it. This could be the thing that really takes me up another level in this business. Yeah, without question. And before I even had to do that, I had to tell Matt Hyde, my friend. That you were going to skip out on that record. That we were about to make this record together. And I was totally freaking out. Like, oh my God, I can't believe this. I've got to tell this guy that I respect so much. This guy that has helped me so This guy that used to let me borrow money when I was a runner at Sound City because I didn't have enough money to pay the rent. This guy, oh my God, I was crushed. But I called him up. We were staying in the same hotel. Let's have breakfast tomorrow. I need to talk to you. Boom. We go, we have breakfast. Lay it out for him. Dude, I got this call. I got this opportunity. Tell me what to do. What should I do? And he, if he, I don't know, if anybody who knows Matt Hyde listening to this, he was just like, he took a sip of his coffee, he leaned back in his chair. He's like, dude, he's like, of course you're going to do it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> of course. You're crazy. He's like, this is the opportunity that everybody waits for. This is it. And just this flood of just like, oh. That's the first level is, is, is making sure Matt's cool. Yeah. There were tears and hugs and boom. I went to the studio, grabbed my shit and drove back to Hollywood. I think two days later, I was back in Virginia. What about the conversation with John Silva? Was that a difficult conversation? I don't remember it being difficult because I had already met John. And I had to talk to him and I had to talk to Bruce Floor, who was the A&R guy at the time for the Foo Fighters at RCA. I don't really remember exactly what was said, but I just remember talking to them and being confident. And I don't think either of them asked me point blank, are you sure you can do this type thing? And just, I don't know. I don't even, honestly, I don't even remember, to be honest yeah. with you. It was so long ago. And I was probably so excited at the time that. <laughs> yeah. But whatever, whatever was said was the right shit. Because you clearly said the right shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been scared to death that I would lose it based on that conversation alone. Well, at that point, I had already, you know, again, the Sound City years had exposed me to managers and A&R guys and producers, you know, because a lot of those dudes would take breaks and they'd come hang out in the front lounge at Sound City while I was a runner. I'm just sitting up there watching TV, waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. And they'd come hang out and we'd strike up conversations and become friends. So being at the Sound City environment got me comfortable being around people like that. I've seen a quote from you out there on the interwebs. I'll paraphrase. It had something to do with dealing with people is really what this is mostly about. Because, you know, you have the technical end of it, but it's the people. And it seems like all along the way in how you've dealt with people, that's been the winning formula to progress forward. I just think that this is not even half tech. It's a 25% tech and gear and mics and this and that. The other 75% of it is just connecting with people on a human level. You've got to create this relationship really fast with people. This really intense, you need to trust me right now, even though you don't know me. And for whatever the reason is, I've been able to connect with all these artists on that level, like, immediately. Well, your enthusiasm is infectious. Just on the YouTube interviews I've seen with you, I've thought, wow, he, <laughs> you, you really, like, come across like you're just almost like a little kid, but at yeah. the same time, one who is in great control of the ship. And I think that, personally, I get so caught up in the logistics that I start to worry about, Okay, well, if Dave Grohl says, Nick, you're going to produce, 
I would immediately think, well, okay, yeah, sure, I can do that, but what do I ask? You know, who do I ask to get paid? How much do I get paid? How is this handled? What yeah. did you do to that? Did you turn to friends like Matt and and say, what do I do? At that point, I actually had a manager. Mm. I think maybe a year or so before that. I think it was after, right after the Danzig record I did, I realized I need to get somebody to represent me and help me get out there more and make sure that I could get paid for what I'm doing properly because I was starting to record things that were starting to be released. And then you have to deal with what about the whole points thing and stuff like that. How does that work? I had no idea. So I had a guy and it was really good. It was a great relationship and he was good for me and he knew John Silva. So they worked out, I gotta say from that point all the way up until now, I've, I've luckily I've never had to deal with any of that shit really. I mean, I have to deal with it of course, but I don't have to have those conversations. I hate talking to artists about money. I hate that part of the business part of the conversation. I've, I've never liked doing that because I hate mixing those two things together. Art and money is just a bad combination and creativity and all that. And I like to stay out of that as much as I can, to be honest with you. Yeah. Well, I, I understand, especially, you know, when your focus and drive is really about making great records, nothing is the killjoy like, hey, so let's talk about money. Yeah. You know, and at that point too, it was kind of like, all right, I need a manager because I think I'm starting to get pretty good at this. People are calling me all the time. I was getting really busy. And then, like I said a minute ago, things kind of dried up a little bit there for a second. But up until that point, it was all good. And I just, I didn't want to be taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And I guess my shit was really simple back then before the Foo Fighters. Everything got complicated after the Foo Fighters. We made that record and we had a great time making it. And I was still figuring out what to do. There was new, a lot of new technology coming out at that point. And, you know, I was still learning how to be a producer and dealing with Dave. He's so talented and he really is kick ass at most of the shit he does. I think part of producing Dave is, is kind of just letting him do his thing mm -hmm. in a way. That's, it's kind of a different angle on producing. But with artists like that, they don't need a whole lot. I think a lot of it has to do with encouragement and making sure they don't get off track of what they're trying to do and the vision that they've got. Connecting with that vision with an artist, sometimes you got to go in really hard and sometimes you got to sit back and just let them do it and make yeah. sure it just doesn't derail. And once you do a record like that, it really opens the doors, which it did for you. It changed everything. It changed my whole life. There's no question. I can never thank Dave and John Silva and Bruce Floor enough for giving me that opportunity to produce that record. I mean, straight up, that was, it was a game changer. We won a Grammy a year later for it and it sold like a couple million copies within like nine or 10 months. And the single was number one on the radio. So yeah, like immediately, man, the phone started ringing and I got busy. Like I started producing major label records like immediately. Wow. <laughs> Good for you. That's really a great story to hear that. I mean, had you and your wife left L.A. before that moment, yes, we would be having a different conversation. We wouldn't be having it. Oh, not necessarily, because not everybody on this show is is well known. Yeah. We might possibly be having it, because I'm sure your work ethic in the studio would not have really changed. Yeah, I don't know what, you know, I honestly have no idea what I would have done. I probably would have gone back and gone back to work at the Mexican restaurant. and. yeah. I honestly have no idea what I would have done, but I never looked back, man. I never looked back for one second. Now, 
to get an opportunity to work with a band like Alice in Chains making their first record in quite a number of years, 15, 16 years or something, with a new singer, that would have been a complicated situation to walk into. I mean, a little intimidating being that they're Alice in Chains, number one, but it carries with it the extra complication of a new singer and whether or not that's even going to work for people. Absolutely. All of the above. Do you have a conscious method in your head that you learn to break the ice with strangers and, and get familiar with people in a very short period of time? I mean, honestly, man, there's not really a, a conscious effort other than I just be myself and I'm curious about people and I like to ask questions and I really love music. And if I'm talking to the right person and that that's their connection also, the connection just it usually just kind of happens. It was the same way with the guys in Rush. I never thought in a 10 zillion years I would ever work with those guys. And it's gone so far past just recording with them. Like, we're friends, and it's awesome. They're totally cool people. Yeah. Alice in Chains is one potentially intimidating scenario to walk into, but Rush. Yeah. I mean, that, that carries with it probably some childhood dreams and thoughts of this band that I'm sure you followed from long ago. Oh, yeah. I was a huge Rush fan, but I was more interested in making a record with them than I was being a Rush fan with them. I was more interested in getting to know them as people and, in my opinion, getting Rush to this thing that they sounded like from the eras of Rush that I loved growing up. And I know pretty much what all my friends talk about. Oh, we should sound more like this or that or whatever, blah, 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 you know. And I wasn't intimidated at all, to be honest with you. Again, it just felt, it felt right. It felt normal. I felt like we were making a record. And as we were making it, it just turned into this thing. And it was an amazing experience. I can imagine. We are almost out of time, but I, I do want to squeeze in a few more questions to you. As far as the takeaway from your career and looking back at the decisions that you've made, what are those decisions that you think have made this career possible? There's a lot of them. There's a lot of layers to that, man. I think one of the big, big things is just work ethic and not compromising song-wise, sonically, just keeping it at the highest possible level all the time. And continuing to do that, I don't know how to do it any other way. Yeah. I think that's one of the big ones. And just being fun to hang around with, shit, I don't know. When you love what you do, you have a good time doing it. And it's not always easy and it's not always fun, but it usually yeah. is. When it's hard, it's hard, just like any, any job. But it's usually awesome when you get to do this thing that people are going to listen to and what's going to make them happy. And that's what keeps feeding the whole thing, man, is, is that creativity. And I'd love to be creative and, and connect with creative people. And it seems like when you do this, I mean, you go all in. Your enthusiasm reveals that to me. And what it also brings about is the question of how has your work-life balance been throughout the years? Because it seems that, you know, I mean, it's a tough business anyway. So yeah. You're married, so you've obviously made some work-life balance work. Yeah. What would your observations of your own life be about that, how you've managed it? You got to find the right person. <laughs> I'm lucky I found the right girl who will put up with this. She loves me enough that she's willing to put up with all the shit that comes along with it, thankfully. 
you just have to make time for other things in your life, which is really, really hard to do. And I'm super guilty of not doing that in the past and will probably do it again in the future because it's, it's impossible to put a time limit on this. Yeah. That's one thing I've learned big time over the years is you know, if you're not under the just most absolute crazy deadline ever, which some most things are, but just having you know the time it takes to make a record and make it great is just, it just takes a lot of time and there's no quick way to do it. Yeah. But it just really isn't. Still to this day, with all the technology and everything, it still takes forever. Finally, was your primary decision in moving back to Tennessee driven mostly by family, to just be around family, knowing that now that you've had the track record you have, you could pretty much operate from anywhere? I mean, that was a big part of it, for sure. Amber's parents live closer. My mom will live closer. We'll be closer to that. And it just hit me one morning when we were in California it was like I was starting to work out of town a lot. I was starting to have to have to leave L.A. and work at studios in, in New York and other places. And I was gone. I was like, man, I don't even have to live here anymore. I'm doing good. I think the career is pretty solid. Around that time, the downloading started. All that stuff started. I saw the numbers start to drop. I was like, oh, it's like we better get out of here. We, we've set ourselves up with this awesome life out here. But and then coming back to Tennessee was great. I mean, I grew up in Tennessee. We both did. It was kind of a no-brainer, and we were starting to have kids and the family, and it was so crazy out there. We just wanted to be back in Tennessee and have space and, and raise our kids back here. So I was able to come back here and work. I found some awesome studios, Blackbird, oh, yeah. a couple other ones. There's Cartage here. There's a great airport. There's tons of hotels for my bands to stay at. So I've been making records in Nashville since 2007. Hmm. I never told anybody I moved from L.A. either because I didn't want everybody to think I'm moving to be like some country dude. It's like I've been making, <laughs> I've had Alice in Chains and Corn and Trivium and all the records I've made in the last 10 years I've pretty much made here in Nashville. Black Gives Way to Blue was made in Nashville? That was done in L.A. We okay. did parts of the last record. Okay. Those first two Alice records, I had to go to California to make them out there. On a departing note for the audience, if, I, if I'm right, Paul Fig has worked for you, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to put a link in the show notes because my uh, interview with Paul, I think we talk a little bit about his connection to you so the audience can put the dots together, if, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Paul's also Sound City alumni. Yeah. I needed an engineer and I remembered him and we hit it off really well at Sound City. And it's like, boom, I need a guy. Paul, what are you doing? All right. Yeah. Great. Quit. You're coming to work for me. Super nice guy. Love talking with him. <laughs> I love Paul. Yeah. He's the best. Nick, I really want to thank you. I've, I've been meaning to get in touch and, and try to get you on the show for a long time, and I appreciate your time today. So thank you so much. No problem. My pleasure, man. It was good to talk to you and fun to talk about all those old memories. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate it. No problem. It was good talking to you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. 
Nick Raskulinix here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Want to remind you, if you have guest suggestions, which I totally welcome, head on over to workingclassaudio.com and find the guest suggestion form and fill that out. Send it on over. I would love to hear who you would like to nominate to be on the show. But that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the mystical voice of Chuck Smith. That's right. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.